One Week Season. season fam jm to win here welcome to our first edition of the season of the inner circle training podcast i am your host i am your guest i am jm to win throw this baby on 1.5 x speed and let's get started Obviously, I'm excited to be diving into this. It's my first solo pod of the regular season, first solo pod since we had the BB Plus podcast feed. And as always, we make everything free week one. So this is an opportunity to speak to Inner Circle members, but also speak to all of you. So we have some cool stuff that we're going to get to in today's segment. If you're new to this segment, if you weren't in Inner Circle last year or you're listening to this because you have free access this year, We use the Tuesday training segment to basically talk about big picture DFS. And a lot of times once we get into the season, that's through the lens of the week behind us or the week ahead. So it's kind of relevant to what you're thinking about at the moment. But more importantly, it's stuff that we can take into DFS play in general and kind of learn to think for ourselves and learn to make better decisions on our own rosters and build better rosters and obviously set ourselves up to make more money over time. So for example, next week, week two, obviously this will be for inner circle members only, but next week, week two, we're going to be, you'll see in the scroll this week, I'm going to have a building blocks article where it's going to break down several foundational building blocks, basically like two players from one team or two players, the player from another team. So you call it a stack, but the idea of these building blocks is that it is something that is that makes a lot of sense and a lot of times looks like it doesn't make sense. So it immediately sets your roster apart from all the other rosters out there and allows you to basically not worry about differentiating in a lot of other spots on your roster because your roster is already automatically unique and different from what else you're going to be competing against. So we're going to have the building blocks. Actually, the building blocks are being switched from an article to a podcast. So that'll be in podcast form later this week. And then next Tuesday, next Tuesday's segment, I'm going to be breaking down my main roster for week one that is going to start with one of those building blocks. And so we'll be able to see what one of those building blocks looks like in action. And then the decisions that I made on the rest of my roster based on the fact that I was starting my roster with one of those building blocks. So you'll find the building blocks in the building blocks podcast, which will come out, I guess, this week on this podcast feed, the one week season podcast feed. And then next week we will be diving into that. But today, what we are going to be taking a look at is three things. We're going to be taking a look at the value of DFS even if you're not winning money. Next, we're going to look at early season bankroll management. And then the third thing we're going to look at is methods for maximizing your chances of winning money. If you're playing DFS correctly, you are going to make money over time. If you're listening to this podcast every week, the 99% chance you are playing DFS correctly. So you are going to be making money over time, but also there are ups and downs. There are swings. So we want to also understand that DFS is not just about the money that we're making in the short term, or even just about the money we're making from DFS, but 
also the other value that we're gaining from DFS. We want to understand how to manage our bankroll so that we put ourselves in position for our long-term edge to play out. And then we also want to be looking for the short-term things that we can be doing in order to bring in as much money as possible and benefit from the work that we're putting in as much as possible. So those are the three things we're going to look at in this podcast today. One final note before we dive into that, if you are an Inner Circle member, if you are an OWS DFS member, we have the private podcast feeds that again, everything's free week one, so this will all go on the public one week season podcast feed. Starting week two, the Angles podcast will be available only to paying OWS members. And then obviously the Inner Circle podcast will be available only to Inner Circle members. So same as last year, or if you're new, you didn't do this last year, but you will add this private podcast feed. We have to change the links to it every year so that people who didn't renew don't still have access to the podcast. So you go to the OWS podcasts page. It's easy to find in the menu under the NFL tab. Go to the OWS podcast page, On that page, you will find a link that will allow you to add the Angles podcast, the Inner Circle podcast to your Apple podcast player or whatever podcast player you use. And then those new episodes will will get delivered directly to your phone every single week starting in week two. So if you're an OWS DFS member, an Inner Circle member, be sure to go to the podcast page and add those new podcasts with that. Let's dive in. So our first item is the value of DFS, even if you're not winning. So when we get to the bankroll building section of this podcast, you'll see what I mean by if you're not winning. Because again, if you're playing DFS correctly, you are going to be profitable over time. All this talk about there not being an edge anymore. I was on Pete Overzet's podcast the other day. In fact, Pete and I are doing a weekly podcast on Fridays this this year, which I'm really excited about. But I was on Pete's podcast the other day, and we were talking about this idea of people saying that there's no longer an edge in DFS. And it makes me think about something I said during best ball drafting season, where last year we, we rewind back to 2021. And we were the only site that was really focused on this idea of drafting for week 17 in these best ball tournaments, thinking about week 17, what the matchups are, how we're stacking our rosters for that week. Then Chess Liam came along, won the best ball mania two with a roster that properly thought about and stacked weeks 16 and 17. And that was the reason that he won. So because that worked out last year, and I'll be clear, there were different people thinking of this strategy. I've mentioned this before. Chess Liam, friend of the show, he's been on the Best Ball podcast. Uh, As far as I know, not an OWS subscriber. So it's not like he came to this idea of drafting for Week 17 through our content. We weren't the only people thinking of it, but we were the only people really talking about it. And so because of that, it just wasn't an an idea that was really out there. Then people look at what worked last year. They immediately assume that that's what's going to work this year. And so this year, all of the content in Best Ball was about building for Week 17. And one of the things that I said in regards to that was, if everybody is on the same edge, it's no longer an edge. That doesn't mean that it's not a good thing to do. It's like we talk about it, you, the edge in DFS used to be as simple as being better than everybody else at predicting what was likeliest to happen. Now that's no longer an edge because kind of everybody has that information at this point. 
That doesn't mean that it's no longer important. It just means that that's kind of the ground floor that you have to have. And you have to go up to a next level or a next level and a next level. So in best ball this year, it was like, sure, you still need to think about week 17, but that's not the strategy. That's not the end of your strategy. You have to think about what people might be chasing next year. And you need to be doing that now. So I think that this idea of there being no edge in DFS is just because groupthink tends to congregate on the same ideas. People do what's comfortable. People do what everybody else is doing. And so everybody is now doing things like stacking and thinking about correlation, which is fundamentally pretty obvious, right? If, if a quarterback has a big game, his wide receivers, one of his wide receivers is likely to have a big game and stuff like that's pretty simple. And a lot of times then if you extrapolate that into game environment and who else from this game could hit, you end up with these correlated builds, which scoring in the NFL is correlated, right? So our builds should be to some extent correlated. And we see this question, we've seen it in inner circle, we've addressed it in inner circle. This idea of if everybody's stacking, is that something that we shouldn't be doing anymore? Is our edge maybe moving away from what everybody else is doing? And sure, there's some you know, viable cases to be made for situations where we don't do that or where we don't stack as much as other people or we're more intelligent with our stacks. But another way to look at that is this is just another level that everybody has kind of reached. And so we have to think about what the other levels are. And there are so many levels of DFS play that other people haven't touched yet. And so the masses are all doing what worked two years, three years ago, four years ago, because fewer people were doing it back then. And so in their minds, it's like, well, this was the edge and it's not an edge anymore. There is always an edge. It's just finding the newest edge that other people aren't on. So that's one of the things, obviously, that, you know, that's why you're on one week season is because that's one of the things we're focused on. And that's something that people like Zandemir and Mike and Hilo and myself are good at is finding those new edges. So that's worth addressing. Is there still an edge in DFS? 100%. It's just not the same edge that it was three or four years ago. And that might still be something that you need to do because that's the new foundational element that everybody's on, but that's not going to set your rosters apart or give you higher ROI over time. So again, at the end of this podcast, we're going to touch on some of the things that's not actually specifically, uh, there's a lot of things that you can do on the DraftKings main slate that are, that are just going to give you an edge. And that's more what we'll be focused on all season along with other things, of course. But uh, in, at the end of this pod, we'll be talking about some of the things more generally of like what you can do to use this time of year to your financial benefit. Even with all that, we come back to this topic of benefiting from DFS even when you're not making money. Because again, what we're doing is we're building in edges for ourselves that are going to play out over time, which means there are going to be stretches of time when we're not making money. And if our mindset is, well, the reason I'm playing DFS is because I want to become a DFS pro or I want to win a million dollars or I want to make all this money. Well, then we're missing a lot of other things that could be helping us along the way. So I was thinking about this the other night. And I was thinking about, and I've talked about this for years. I've mentioned this a few times before. Uh, I've talked about this since 2015. <laughs> but the marketing angle that DraftKings and FanDuel, and more particularly DraftKings, has taken over the years it is, in my opinion, so incorrect. The marketing angle around DraftKings has been this Millie Maker, throw in $20 and win a million bucks, which if you are a DFS player, you understand you're competing as 192,000 rosters, somewhere in that range. 
which you understand means that if you're putting in one or two or three rosters already, even if you have an edge, even if you're better than everybody, it would take centuries for your edge to actually play out. We only have 18 games each season. It would take millennia for your edge to, to work out. And then furthermore, if you are putting in one roster, there are other people who are also really good at this, who are putting in 150 rosters. So they are shortening the time frame that is required for their edge to play out because they're basically making the sample size of each week smaller. That doesn't make any one of their one rosters likelier to make money. That's the misconception is, oh, these guys have 150 rosters in this contest. Of course they're winning. Well, yes, they're going to win more often. That doesn't mean that they're going to be profitable. They're going to win 150 times more frequently than a really sharp player with one entry. But they still have to be really sharp in order for their ROI to be positive over time. So understand that, that you're competing against people who are not just putting in 150 rosters, but a lot of whom are putting in 150 rosters because they're really good at understanding how to put in 150 rosters and be profitable over time. So if you enter into, sure, it catches the attention, $20, when a million, you enter into DFS for that though, you quickly realize that this is a losing game for you and you move on. Whereas realistically, DFS should have mass appeal. I would estimate that as far as consistent DFS players, two to three percent of fantasy players play DFS. And in fact, a lot of hardcore DFS players at this point don't even play season-long fantasy anymore. So you've got all these season-long players who don't play DFS. And in my opinion, the whole marketing angle is incorrect because DFS is for everybody. It's something that everybody would enjoy doing. It's something that people who are into fantasy should love the idea of weekly leagues. Even if that just means a $3 entry with your fantasy league. Every every week, your fantasy league, in addition to your season-long season, you guys run a 12-team, $3 buy-in league. Or even if it's just a six-team six league with, with friends and family, right? Or if it's hunting for these smaller field Lower buy-in tournaments doesn't have to be lower buy-ins, but as we often talk about these smaller field bankroll building tournaments, these are the things that people should ideally be playing. And on top of that, the value of playing DFS is unbelievably tremendous. And I see it like this. You could literally set aside say $10 a week throughout the year, $10 a week. That's your DFS money. And you get to September, you drop 150, 200 bucks on a subscription. And now you have $300 left over. So when we get to this next section, where we talk about bankroll, we will talk about how I would manage that $300 and approach that $300. But if you look at this money through this, this lens, if you say, I'm setting aside 10 bucks a week throughout the year, I've got f- around $500 to put into DFS, I'm going to get a subscription because at this point, that's kind of necessary if you're going to play DFS just because people have so much information and you need that level of information at your fingertips. You don't have the time or the need to gather all this information yourself. You get a good subscription, 
you get, it doesn't have to be OWS either. If you're, if you're listening to this for free this week, find one that fits you. You get a good subscription that has good projections, good ownership projections, good content, a good community. And ideally that also teaches you how to play DFS along the way. So you're not just playing the same way everybody else is playing. You get a good subscription and then you have this 300 or so dollars that you can put into play throughout the year. And if you lose that $300, if you're out 500 bucks at the end of the year, if you're out that $10 a week at the end of the year, here's the thing. You have learned so much more. If you're, if you're trying to play DFS correctly, you have learned so much more than you could in just about any other way you could spend that $500. Furthermore, you have something that you're engaged with throughout the entire fall, 18 weeks, whatever it is. You have something that is, you're paying for entertainment, you're paying for enjoyment, but you're also paying for education. And as we kind of go through the season, obviously, I'm not going to dive into this too deeply here because if you're a longtime listener, you hear me kind of mention tidbits all the time about the things that we can take from DFS. But just this, the, over the 10 years, nine, 10 years I've been in DFS, I have become exponentially sharper in almost every other area of my life in a way that is directly attributable to learning DFS. Aaron talks about this all the time. Aaron, our COO, Rotomaven on Discord. Uh, since, since Aaron has been plugged into the site and communicating with the team all the time and managing everything and kind of reading all the content and listening to all the podcasts just in a work role capacity, he's like, I constantly see angles in other areas of life where it's like, oh, here's an edge here, or here's a better way to do this over here, or here's a way to make extra money on this right here, or here's a way to make money on this that I wouldn't previously have thought of this as an opportunity to make money. And so just from playing DFS and from being immersed in this DFS community where we're thinking about DFS as a strategy game where each week we're presented with a new set of problems and we get to solve this puzzle. We essentially have to figure out what the picture on the box is each week. And then we have to figure out the most efficient way to put that puzzle together. And in doing that, you get this constant practice that allows you to take this same type of thinking over to all other areas of life. I think that a lot of us came into DFS, you know, I came in in 2013, so a couple of years before the, the big advertising blitz, but a lot of us came into DFS in 2015, 2016, 2017, when there was the big blitz of marketing. And we had, a lot of us had kind of unmarried or young married without kids and had extra time on our hands. And so it's interesting, uh, we've talked about this, like Hilo, Mike, Zandmir, myself, Aaron, we all have kids who are around the same age and, you know, five and five and under. Hilo's got 12 kids, right? So they're all spread out all over the place, but <laughs> like five and under. And it's because, you know, and a lot of our community is in that same place because it's like, a lot of us were in a similar demographic entering DFS at a similar time in our lives. And so many of us are still here in DFS, not just because there's money to be made, but even more than that, in my opinion, so many of us are still here, especially in the OWS community, because we have found that we're constantly learning new things about other areas of life. We're constantly becoming 
better at making money, constantly becoming better at being communicators, at being people, at being good husbands, good parents, and so on and so forth. And so much of that is learned, can be learned through understanding the angles of DFS and carrying those angles over to all other areas of life. And I want to encourage you to think that way as you enter the season, because if you enter the season with money being the only focus of DFS, you're missing so much. Furthermore, you're probably a little bit less likely to make money if you're so focused on the money, because if you're so focused on the money, you get too focused on potentially losing that money and you end up making fear-based decisions instead of embracing uncertainty in search of upside, embracing uncertainty in search of first place finishes. So I want to encourage you to shift your mindset as you enter the season over to saying, whatever amount I'm willing to lose this season, if I lost all of it, I will still be looking at this as a way to say, look, I was learning a lot. I'm going to make money on DFS over time. But in the short term, I was learning a lot and I'm making more money in other areas of life. I'm, I'm getting better in other areas of life because of the time I'm spending in DFS. Okay, so the next step then, bankroll management. So I'm going to stick with this example of having $300 to put in play. And I see bankroll as two separate things. There's the bankroll that you would essentially say, okay, I I can play about 10% of this per week. If let's say I'm playing single entry or limited entry tournament play, I can play about 10% of this per week. And in this example, I'm just playing the main slate. So that buys me 10 weeks of time. And even if I go on a little bit of a cold run, I'm going to cash something in there. I'm going to cash one or two weeks in there. You cash, you double up that week's entry fee, right? So that buys you two more weeks. Somewhere along the line, you're probably cashing at least two times and you're 14, 15 weeks into the season at this point, just on that original bankroll. So from a fundamental standpoint, I'm comfortable with the idea of, hey, 10% of my bankroll, I'll put that into play each week. I'm playing single entry, limited entry, whatever it might be. If you're playing more entries, if you're increasing your sample size, now this is a a lot of you probably already have your, maybe not a lot of you, but some of you certainly have your bankroll structure already set. I wouldn't take anything that I'm saying and, and kind of get it in your head like, well, JM said I should be doing things this way. Maybe I'm doing things wrong. This is like very broad, general brush strokes to say, A, if you don't have a bankroll plan, you should. It's it's critical that you've thought through these things. It's critical that you've thought through these things because it's similar to DFS, where we always say, look, we're not trying to predict what's going to happen. We want to understand our range of outcomes and make a smart decision. And if you've thought through the decision on your DFS roster, you've already thought through how this decision can pay off and how this decision can fail. So if the decision fails, you can say, well, that I knew that that was in the range of outcomes and I already accounted for this scenario. And I was comfortable that if we could play this slate out a hundred times, this would have been one of the more profitable ways to go. So it's okay that it didn't work out this time. Same thing if you've already thought through, okay, here's the amount that I'm dedicating to the season. 
here's what it will feel like if I lose this amount, here's what I'll do at that point. Well, then if you were to lose that amount, sure, you're disappointed, but you've also already been there in that situation in your mind. You already knew that this was a possibility. You've accounted for it. You've accounted for how you would feel emotionally off of those losses. And you've said that you were comfortable with that. So you need a bankroll plan just in general. And then if you don't have one, this is a general idea of how you can be approaching your bankroll for NFL season. So if you have this same $300, but you're going to play a bunch of entries, say you're going to put, you know, 10 entries each week into a $3 20 max tournament. Well, in that case, you can play, you could actually play more than 10% because you're probably not playing these 10 rosters like, you know, just all variations of one single game. So you're going to essentially expand your sample size throughout the season, or I should say expand your sample size in each individual week. And so you can kind of give yourself more time. Uh, Basically, things will play out for you a little bit more quickly. So you could play 15% of your bankroll, 17% of your bankroll, whatever you feel comfortable with, understanding that not all 10 rosters are going to fail to cash every week. Not all 15 rosters are going to fail to cash every week. And so as some of those cash, they keep adding money back into your bankroll. But there's also what I would call your true bankroll. Your true bankroll is, and I'll say it like this, I had multiple stretches in MLB where I went two or more weeks without cashing a single time in tournaments. I had at least one stretch that was 19 straight days and maybe other stretches that were equally long. I remember there was a, a, I've brought this up before, but it was maybe the 2017 season, 2016 MLB season. Uh, Bales had like an 80 grand day on week, on day one, on the first slate of the MLB season, and then went like two months without making any money on any slates. So you can go through these long stretches. Now, Bales was multi-entry and I was more limited entry. So um, for him, you know, that's not being profitable on all those slates and you're not just losing all that money every slate. For me, it's like one to three entries and you're going two weeks without a single one of them cashing. So if we bring that over to NFL, that's almost like an entire NFL season without a single tournament roster cashing. And those are years where I'm still getting live final appearances. Those are years where I'm still winning tournaments. So it's not like I suddenly became a bad DFS player in those stretches. Those were just stretches where the kind of way that I was playing things, given the risk reward that I was willing to take on, things went cold for a little while. And you have this longer stretch of not cashing in any tournaments. So you have to understand that that can happen in NFL. Now, a little side trail here. How do we know if we're on the right process if that's happening, right? This is tough in NFL. We talk about this a lot throughout the season for Inner Circle because we get questions three, four, five weeks into the season where it's like, man, I haven't cashed once. What am I doing wrong? And it's like, well, how many rosters are you putting in play each week? One or two? Well, you know, only 20% of the field cashes, only one out of every five rosters cash. And only one out of every 10 rosters do anything more than double their money, right? So it's like, that's okay. You're going to go through stretches where you don't cash. If you've won a tournament before, you've had high finishes before, it is, there's a difference between thinking you can do something, no matter how confident you are, 
There's a difference between thinking you can do something and knowing you can do something because you've done it before. So if you've had high finishes before, if you've won tournaments before, it's very easy or should be easy over time to say, yeah, I haven't cashed for eight straight weeks in tournaments. Ha ha, this sucks. I, I can make jokes to my friends about it. But also I, I know internally that I'm doing things right because I know that this is just how things work out sometimes. If you haven't had any big successes in DFS, it can be a lot harder to go on one of those one of those colder streaks because you can feel like, well, I must be doing something wrong. So obviously, if you're an inner circle member, that helps you a lot because you just have kind of that constant reinforcement and messaging of, okay, here's how we play DFS. Here's how we should be thinking about DFS in general. Here's how we should be thinking about this slate in general. I understand the ins and outs of these strategies. I'm seeing, you know, I mean, last year we had so many big wins from Inner Circle members. We we featured a couple of them on the Inner Circle podcast. We'll do that again this year. So you kind of hear these guys talk about their rosters. You hear us talk about our rosters and you're like, okay, I was doing the same. I'm on the same track. I'm thinking the same way. This will play out in my favor over time. So that's just a few details on like the mindset standpoint of those colder stretches. But it's important to realize that if you're playing, say, limited entries, if you're playing one to three entries per week and you've got your $30 a week off this $300 bankroll, well, it's not completely unrealistic for you to play well and reach the end of week 10 and that money's gone. Now, that's not going to happen every season, right? 10 out of 10 with no rosters cashing, especially if you're playing two to three rosters a week, right? If you've got 20 to 30 rosters, none of them cashing, that's a really cold stretch. But it can happen. If you're playing one roster a week, uh, every once in a while, two, if you've only played 15, 18 rosters through 10 weeks, it's very reasonable for you to go on that streak and not cash once, and then that money's gone. So what I would say is, A, know what your bankroll is, what you expect to put into play. And, you know, okay, and if I lose this through 10 weeks, what's my true bankroll? Do I continue playing 30 bucks a week? What if I lost another 240 across the last eight weeks? How would that affect me emotionally from the standpoint of hating to lose, being a competitor and hating to lose? And then that's one thing, right? But the other thing then, and this is obviously much more critical, but from a standpoint of hating to lose this money, if you are putting your bankroll in a position where you're like, oh, I hate that I lost that money. I, I could have used that money for this. I needed that money. I mean, this, this is very basic stuff, right? This is for sports betting. This is for DFS. But it's so critical because your entire mindset can shift and your play can become much worse when you're putting scared money into play. So you need, you know, we they've sold us this dream of, put in 20 bucks and win a million. They've sold us this dream about becoming a DFS pro. And so if we enter the season with that mindset, it's easy to get a little bit too aggressive and not think about the potential consequences. But if we think like a DFS player and we think about all the options and all the angles and all the ways that things can play out, we understand that it's a low percentage chance that we go 10 weeks and don't cash anything, but we have to take that into account. And then we have to think, okay, so then what am I actually comfortable playing each week? And then what happens if it's gone? Is my true bankroll this actual 300 and week 10 ends and I'm just done for the season? 
Another way you can play that is week 10 ends and I'm not putting in 30 bucks each week anymore, but I can put $5 in each week and just keep sharpening my play. Now I've got eight weeks where I don't expect to win a ton of money. I don't expect to win back what I lost. Maybe I get a nice cash and I do win back what I lost, but that's not my expectation. My expectation is just, let me just keep putting in sharp play. Let me just keep putting in practice and keep getting better at thinking through these things. And next year I'll come back I'm even stronger and these sample sizes will start playing out in my favor. Or maybe you say, you know what? If I lose this 300 bucks, I've got another 200 and I'll divide that up over eight weeks. I'll play 25 bucks a week. I've got another 160 I'll put in play and I'll play 20 bucks a week. I'll take week, I'll take week 11 off to refresh and then I'll give myself seven weeks with X amount in play per week. And that's kind of how I built my bankroll, right? Like I didn't have a bankroll so much as I had, okay, this is what I'm willing to lose. And if I lose this, then I'm probably willing to go a little bit higher than that. I'm willing to lose this, but I'll kind of start here and then focused on smaller field contests, a lot of $27 buy-in, $12 buy-in and MLB. And, you know, you hit a couple of those and all of a sudden your bankroll's bigger and you're playing 50 bucks per slate or a hundred bucks per slate. And then your bankroll's bigger and you're playing in the $300 qualifiers or you're playing in the $300 tournaments. And then you hit again and your bankroll is bigger and you're playing in the 1K tournaments, right? And so you can essentially you can follow these steps, right? That that you keep stepping up bankroll levels, but you also have to know what happens if you end up in a position where you are falling down in your bankroll, right? And so think in advance about all the different ways that this could play out and manage your money and your weekly entry fees and your weekly approach accordingly. And then the last note that I want to add here, I'll, I'll frame it like this. This year, I've gotten really into Formula One. I've never been into motorsports before. Uh, Anytime I tell people that I got into Formula One, they ask me if it's because of the Netflix show. It's actually because William is so into cars that we started watching Formula One clips on YouTube. And then he got so into Formula One that I got really into Formula One myself. And now it's the fall and I've watched essentially watched every race from the last five years um, throughout the year this year. So in Formula One, there's this balance of these guys have to push absolutely to the limit of their car because they're chasing hundredths of a second, sometimes thousandths of a second, right? A four mile track and they're chasing less time than you can like start and stop a stopwatch. So they have to push things to the limit, but the moment they go over that line, they crash. They're out of qualifying, they're out of the race. If this were 30, 40 years ago, they, they might be dead, right? And so it's finding that balance between what is the limit that you can push things to without going over the limit. If you're wanting to be aggressive with DFS, and that's another thing that I did early on, was I was somewhat aggressive with finding that range of like, I'm comfortable losing this. It would suck if I lost this, but it would suck not from a financial standpoint of like, oh my God, we don't have that money anymore. So much as it would suck from like, oh, that would have been nice to have and I hate losing and I hate trying something and not doing well at it. But there was that kind of that fine line of like, I'm pushing things, but I'm not going over. I'm not about to crash. And so you can do that 
as you're kind of figuring out what your comfortable bankroll range is. But as soon as you find it affecting your play, then you need to step back from that line a little bit. Conversely, right uh, right now, if you ask William what he wants to do, he wants to be a Formula One driver. William's also extremely cautious. And if he sees where a line is, he's going to stay like three feet behind that line. Well, that's like, I mean, how do these Formula One drivers start? They start out in go-karts, right? You don't have to start out in a Formula One car with your bankroll. You can start out in go-karts with your, with your bankroll and kind of get used to this and get a little bit more comfortable getting closer and closer to that line if you ever want to. And you don't have to. I'm just saying that you can, if you want to be aggressive with this, which a lot of people do, that's okay. But there is still a breaking point where you go from aggressive enough to maximize your outcome to too aggressive and you crash. So make sure that you're paying attention to that as well. You want to make sure that you can look forward, think through all of the angles, same as we do with DFS and say, okay, if this is the end of week 18 and the season went like this, how will I feel? Put yourself in your shoes. We're just past the new year, just past Christmas. Were you now all of Christmas day with your family, with your kids thinking like, God, I wish we'd had that extra 300 bucks. We could have used it. Or is that out of, out of sight, out of mind during that day, right? And then you come back to play DFS. Now you're thinking about it again, but right, like generally speaking, you don't want it to be seeping into the other areas of your life. And you can put yourself a few months into the future and say, okay, if things do go wrong, how does that play out for me? And then you find that comfortable bankroll range and you find that range that if things do go wrong, you're like, well, I've, I've, I don't like this, but I've already been here in my mind. I know what this looks like. I know how to deal with this. And now we take the next steps forward, start getting ready for next year. Okay, so methods for maximizing the amount of money that you make in DFS, but more so in NFL in the fall of 2022. That can overlap into NBA as well. And there's a lot that we can do. Said this already, there's a lot that we can do to maximize our, our ROI on the DraftKings main slate. There are lots of edges to be found. And it's fun to play the main event. It's fun to play the big slate of the week and there's nothing wrong with that. But no matter how many edges you're finding on the main slate, no matter how sharp you are on the main slate and the big tournaments especially, your edge is still going to be smaller than it would be in a lot of other places. Pricing is super efficient on DraftKings. The top players are really good on DraftKings. The rake is pretty high on DraftKings. If you're newer to DFS lingo, the rake is the money that the site takes out of the contest pool. And some of these contests, 15% of the buy-ins go to DraftKings some, some of them are even more than that, like 16, 17% of the buy-ins go to DraftKings and then the rest of the money is in that player pool. So you don't just have to be a little bit better than the player pool. You have to be a little bit better than the player pool plus the rake over time in order to be 
profitable. That's one reason why if you can get into a smaller field contest, a lot of times have lower rake because they're less of a big draw. And then smaller field high dollar contests have the lowest rake, which is one of the reasons I love those contests. The higher dollar contests necessarily have a sharper player pool, but not to such a significant degree that it offsets the savings in rake. So if we can find places where there's less rake, obviously that helps. But these are small edges on the main slate. No matter what, the main slate is going to be one of the tougher places to make a lot of money over time. Now, it's hard to not be totally focused on the main slate because that's where all the content is. The DraftKings main slate. Every site, that's the main focus is the DraftKings main slate. And of course, because that's the main thing that everyone else is playing. But if that's what all the content is for, if that's what everybody's preparing for, if that's what everybody's thinking about, if that's what all the sharps are thinking about, if that's what all of the best content providers are thinking about and providing advice on and, and research for, well, then what does that mean for these other sites? What does that mean for these other slates? So you can go play on smaller sites. You can go play on Yahoo. Zandamir talks about this all the time, playing on Yahoo and how plus EV it is and how much money there is to be made from loading up on Yahoo tournaments. You could go play on FanDuel. Softer pricing, somewhat softer player pool. I mean, it's not like it's not like you're getting this the the Peewee League uh, <laughs> DFS players, but it's still softer players in general. Like it's a, it's an easier pool of players to beat over time. Your ROI is going to be higher on FanDuel at this point than on DraftKings. Again, softer pricing and, and more importantly, all of the content is all geared toward DraftKings main slate. You can play showdowns. With showdowns, you not only significantly increase your sample size because you get to play on so many slates each week, but also showdowns is a game that everyone's still playing incorrectly. We have Xandamir. That's like a secret weapon. Not only, not just his write-ups, right? His write-ups for the showdowns, you're going to be at an advantage compared to a lot of players out there. But Xandamir's showdown courses in the DFS education marketplace, there's a bundle of four courses that you save 25% on. You also, there's one course in there that's free. It's the original Mastering Showdowns course. The sheer volume of data and analysis in those courses of just like what's an optimal mathematical way to put together showdown rosters and to approach showdowns. If you can ingest that information, you're so far ahead of the field and you get to play three of those slates every week. Or if you're, if you're Zanamir, you can hammer those slates on Sunday afternoons as well and just say, look, this is what I'm best at, right? Let me find what I'm best at and keep hammering this. Uh, I guess Xandamir is a superstar of this podcast. You can also do prop bets. Prop bets are essentially intended to be negative EV for sports books. Now, in an ideal world, would sports books probably love to have super sharp prop bets across the board? Yes. But here's the deal with prop bets. They have to set hundreds of them. If it's if we've got MLB going at the same time, or if we get into late October and we have NBA going, and NBA and MLB playoffs and NFL all going at the same time, college prop bets, you have so many prop bets that Vegas is having to set. There is no way that they can all be efficient. Furthermore, if Vegas sets a really bad prop, 
spread or game total on an NFL game on the weekend, they could lose millions right away because one sharp better can come in and drop several million dollars on one sharp bet. You can't do that in props. Your prop bets are maxed. Different places, different amounts, but typically $500 is pretty common. And so prop betting or or sports books don't risk setting one wrong prop bet and then just getting eaten alive by sharks who are betting tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars or millions of dollars on this one poorly set bet. If you've looked at the numbers on Zandemir's on the, on the, on the homepage, they're on the homepage for the Props Insider stuff. If you look at the numbers, Zandemir last year, well, for across five months, NFL and NBA, across five months, an average bet size of $92.77, and he made over 45 grand in profit. His ROI was about 6% which is about the ROI that Vegas has on the roulette table. So it's not like it's not like you're winning 80% of your bets and you're just raking in money, but it's that you find these small edges where it flips things instead of being in their favor, it flips things in your favor. And as the volume piles up, those bets pile up and that money piles up. I mean, Jay Reezy, who helps out with with all the prop stuff, he essentially stopped playing. I I might be wrong on this at this point, but I think for a little while, he essentially stopped playing DFS because it was like, well, I can just focus on props. Stop playing cash games for sure. It was like, I can just focus on props and make money off of this instead. I can use the NFL Edge, do my research there. And obviously now he's working with Zandamir on generating the props for all of our prop subscribers. And it's like, you can find these edges and just say, um, I always say it like this. We have a society, especially in, in modern America, where there is an emphasis on improving our weaknesses. But if we have, if we take things on a one to 10 scale, and let's say that there's something that's a weakness of yours, it's a two out of 10. Let's say it's a one out of 10. And you work as hard as you can to double up that area for yourself. Well, you've worked so hard and it's still a two out of 10. You've doubled your ability in this area and it's still a two out of 10. And if somebody else had a two out of 10 in this area, that would still be a weakness for them, right? So what's the point of working so hard to turn a one out of 10 into a two out of 10? When over here, you might have something that you're already a seven out of 10 on, and then you can work hard and double that up into a 14 out of 10. That doesn't really make sense, but that's how I see it. And so this idea of like, oh, well, I got to keep playing the main slate. I've never made money on it, but I got to keep playing it. It's like, there's probably something else out there that you're really good at. This is not, DFS is not a game of trying to find the hardest thing to beat and beating it. I did that my first year in MLB. I was, I was shockingly dominant in MLB when I first started playing DFS. And I say shockingly dominant as in now that now when I look back, I'm like, oh, that was crazy. And I made so much money on Draft Street and DraftKings that first year of playing. I never had any like, I mean, there weren't these massive prize pools back then. So I never had like one single massive payout. And my profit was like well over 115, 120,000. Might have been as high as like 140,000 on DraftKings and Draft Street. And I gave back a good 50 grand of that 
on FanDuel MLB. And FanDuel had a very different structure, very different pricing, different scoring structure. It was one pitcher instead of two pitchers. In fact, on Draft Street, it was three pitchers. And I kept playing FanDuel and kept playing FanDuel because as a competitor, I was like, I've got to figure this out. And I played so many slates and never had a single profitable one. Now, eventually they changed the, the structure of the uh, of the rosters and the scoring. And, and I was able to, a couple of years later, come back and have some nice success on FanDuel. But that first year, it was like, I just kept flushing money away, trying to solve this game that was a weakness for me. Instead of quickly identifying, hey, this is something that this is a game style I'm not as good at. So let me put even more energy into the areas I am good at. And that's such a tendency of ours is to say, okay, I'm not good at this. I'm going to keep hammering at it and try to figure it out and get better at it. Whereas instead we should be saying, okay, I'm not good at this. That seems pretty obvious to me. Maybe I can put a small amount of money in there and just for like purposes of challenging myself, try to get good at it, but not this is now my focus. Instead, it should be, this is no longer my focus. I'm not good at this. This is no longer my focus. And instead, Find the places where you are good at things. So a couple other places, Underdog has the Battle Royale, which is kind of like a Millie Maker style tournament, top heavy tournament, but they also have just these little leagues, right? These $3 leagues, these $5 leagues, these $10 leagues where you compete. I think I haven't played them since last year. So off the top of the head, I think you're typically playing, playing against like five other people in a six person league, something like that. You can just sit there while you're working and draft through these leagues and think, you know, think through the strategy. Don't just push buttons. Don't just do muscle memory, but think through the strategy for that particular week, for that particular contest, and then draft well. And what you're going to find over time is over a handful of weeks of entering 10, 15 of these leagues each week and thinking through the strategy for the contest and then also for that particular week, your expected value starts playing out in your favor. You start piling up money in this area. If that's not happening, then you say, you know what, I really don't get this game. If you feel confident, like, I don't get this game, then move on to something else. Uh, I'll never stop hammering the flash drafts on um, island games, Thursday night football, Sunday night football, Monday night football, and how much value there is in playing those correctly and how much money there is to be made in attacking those flash drafts on DraftKings. Superdraft is another one, right? It's one where there's very little content for it. Xandamir did Superdraft content for us last year in the scroll. None of you read it. Like that's how little interest there is in Superdraft content. So you know that even if there's good Superdraft content out there, I mean, I would put our community up against any community in terms of how sharp they are. And so if we're putting out super draft content that's quality and most people aren't reading it, well, you know that other people, like other sites, if there is any other good super draft content, it's not getting read. If you go try to solve that game, again, you're going to make money over time. A lot of times these smaller sites also have overlay. They have contests that don't fill, but because it's a GPP, a guaranteed prize pool, the site itself has to cover the remainder of the money. So instead of there being rake that lowers your EV, there's overlay that raises your EV. Not only do you not have to pay a fee to the site, but 
the site is paying you to play in essence. Like every $5 you put in might already be worth $5.50, for example. So that over time, even if you're just an average break-even player, right? If you're an average break-even player on the DraftKings main slate on contests that fill, you are losing money over time just because the rake is always slowly bleeding out. If you're in overlaid contests, you can literally be a perfectly average player and you would make money over time. So when you think about that and then think about how sharp you are compared to the field, just by virtue of being here on OWS and, and listening to this stuff every week, there's so much edge to be gained by hunting around for these other places. And, and oh, oh, and last one, I haven't even mentioned this. The afternoon only slates, right? Mike is going to be writing us, this is for Inner Circle, but Mike is going to be writing up afternoon only breakdowns every week. Mike specifically asked to have his NFL edge games every week be the afternoon games. So he is already, and, and, and I remember when we kind of started putting some of the NFL edge games on other people. And at first there were some of you who were like, wait, but I'm, I like JM writing these edge games. What I don't think what you guys understood at the time was that writing up 16 of those games, the level of depth I was able to go into myself in my research, plus I was running everything else with the site, running all this other content, the level of depth I was able to go into compared to what these guys are able to do, right? Mike gets his game assignments on Monday. He goes back and watches the two or three most recent games for every team in his, and then he's doing all of this deep research on it that I had no way to have that kind of time for. Hilo is doing blurbs and, and guest content for Roto World now because his NFL knowledge is that deep. And then he's in here diving even deeper into each of these games that he has. I say all that to say, Mike, with these, like he's already writing up these four NFL edge games, these three NFL edge games that are on the afternoon only slate. Like he has gone so deep into these games already. And then he's going to create afternoon only content that is obviously focused on who the sharp plays are and then also the strategy of that. And then you go play those afternoon slates and you're competing against mostly people who are on tilt because their rosters look bad from the early games and they have no research for the afternoon games beyond just their main slate research, no strategy thoughts about the afternoon only games, and then they go throw their money in. The full weekend slates, you play the Thursday to Monday and you get all these people who, you know, throw in their lock-ins and Thursday night guys just to have somebody to watch, or they set their roster on Thursday. You see this a lot. They set their roster on Thursday and never come back and update it. So you've got guys who end up being out on Sunday or just their early week thoughts kind of ended up being their roster. And so they miss out on developing their thoughts deeper into the week. Just all these little places that we can go to scrape up extra edges. And I want you to think about it in terms of what I said about Zandemir's prop bets, right? 6% ROI. $45,000 across five months. Average bet size, 92 bucks, right? $45,000. And it's just because you flip the edge from being a little bit in the sportsbook's favor over to a little bit in your favor. And we can do the same thing in DFS. Instead of the, the we're playing only the main slate on DraftKings and the rake is always kind of putting things a little bit in their favor and we have to beat the field and the rake, let's go find some overlay. And now every week, things are already tilted a little bit in our favor. And then we have extra edge on top of that from just being sharper DFS players, sharper thinkers. 
So with that, we are going to close out the week one Inner Circle training podcast. We still don't have a name for this podcast. Feel free to suggest one if you want. Uh, the Inner Circle Tuesday training podcast will come out on Tuesday in week two. It will be for Inner Circle members only. As I said, make sure you go to the podcast page and add the podcast. If you were in Inner Circle last year, same process. If you were in OWS DFS last year, same process for adding the Angles pod back in. And if you've joined Inner Circle, it's the same process for that one. Basically, just go to the podcast page. You'll find the link to add the podcast directly to your podcast player. Next week, we are going to be taking a look at some of my building blocks, or at least one particular building block, and how I fit it into a roster build that I used as my main roster in week one. I'm recording this on Wednesday. I think I might actually already know what my week one main roster is and what that building block is that I'm using. But one way or another, I will be using one of the building blocks in the building blocks piece in my main roster and I will be breaking down that roster next week along with kind of all of the strategy thoughts that went into it. So with that, I will get out of here. As always, thanks for hanging out. It's a blast to be back. I will see you on the site throughout the week. I'll see you on the Angles pod this weekend. I'll see you in your inbox with the Angles email, so on and so forth. And I will see you at the top of the leaderboards this weekend, hopefully across a variety of slates where you can maximize your edge and bring in as much money as you can. Thank you.